stage. I want to welcome all of you here at Bendorf, greet those online and all of you out at Rock Island as we wrap up our what if journey through the book of Philippians. This has been a powerful experience for us as a church family as we've imagined the possibilities, as we've asked ourselves some life-changing what if questions. And, and today I want to ask one more. But in case you've missed any of our journey through the summer, let me just frame it for a moment. See, Paul wrote the book of Philippians as a letter to his friends, uh, his spiritual family. He wrote it to say thank you. He wrote it to encourage them. He, he wrote it to, to challenge them to live out the good news of Jesus with expectancy. But beyond that, the letter itself represents a really important shift that took place. It was the shift where moving the gospel from just being shared with the Jews to sharing with non-Jews, who people we call Gentiles. That was a huge moment. And we can track that moment back to Acts chapter 16, where, where Paul is cruising around with his, his team and they're ministering through the region of Galatia and they're, they're trying to work their way into Asia, but it says the Spirit stopped them. They tried to go into a couple more places. It says that the Spirit of Jesus stopped them. And they, they end up in a place right about here called Troas. And Troas is just across the water, up near Macedonia, kind of near Philippi. And it was that night when they arrived in Troas that Paul has this vision. It was a man from Macedonia, which would be this northern province of Rome, standing and begging him to come help them. Well, Paul understood that to be a direct message from God to go and take the gospel into that region. So the next morning they got up and they went. And a number of cool things happened in that season, but one thing in particular was that the church was planted in Philippi. Fast forward 10 years, and Paul finds himself... A, prison, a prisoner in Rome. He's chained to a Roman guard. And he's in his own rented house, but he's in prison for up to two years. And it's during that time that he writes this letter to his spiritual family in Philippi. And we've been studying that letter, the book of Philippians. And so as we start today and we wrap up our journey overall, I just want to ask, have you ever had a secret? Ever had a secret? I'm, talk, I'm not talking about the dark deep secrets. I'm talking about the fun ones. You know, the cool secret, like you know about a surprise party. Or the, the kind of secret where you, you have the insider information about how to do a magic trick. Or you know the solution to a problem. Or you know the answer to a question. In those moments, it can be kind of fun. You know, it's exciting to have and know something that others don't know when they may want to know it, right? It can be fun and exciting. Give me a thumbs up. Rock Island, get on this if you know what I mean. Having information that people may want and they don't have. Okay, that can be exciting. It can be fun. But it's not fun for those around us. All we have to do is change roles, put the shoe on the other foot, and very quickly realize how frustrating it is not to know the secret. Because we like to know secrets. In fact, we want to know secrets. And that's your first feeling if you're tracking in your note guide. We want to know secrets. We want to know what? Secrets. We want to know secrets. We don't want to be on the outside. We want to be on the inside. We want to have that insider scoop. We want to, want to know the deal. We want to know the situation. We want to know the shortcut. We want to know how to on whatever project it is. We want to know those things. And when we don't know those moments, we can struggle to actually understand what we're supposed to do in those moments. So here's what I want to do. I just want to slow things down. I want to, I want to get real and I want to get honest. I just want you to turn to somebody next to you and share your deepest secret right now. Go ahead. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. Some of you freaked out. Your eyes got wide. Like, no way. And then actually some of you got excited. Like, I'm going to get to know a secret. Because 
absolutely want to know secrets. We can admit it. We want to know secrets. Many of you know that after college, Beth and I were in the Army. And I was in the military police. She was in military intelligence. And, and I had a secret security clearance. And she had a top secret security, security clearance. Yeah, she knew lots of cool things I didn't get to know. But stuff I wanted to know. When I would ask her about stuff, she said, I can't tell you. It's on, it gave me some mumbo-jumbo about need-to-know basis. And I'm like, I need to know. She's like, no, you don't. We, we want to know secrets. Just the fact and the awareness that a secret exists can draw us in. It perks our interest. Marketers know this. Millions of magazines fly off the shelves every, every week, every month because they claim to contain the secret to happiness, the secret to success, the secret to winning, the secret to a better sex life. Just the mere mention of a secret draws people in. We want to know secrets. We want to know the secret to success. We want to know the secret to, to relationships. We want to know the secret to health. We want to know the secret to happy marriage. We want to know the secret to a worry-free life. We want to know these kinds of secrets. We want to know the secret to happiness. We want to know the secret to raising kids, to obtaining wealth, to leading people. Just fill in the blank. What do you want? The, what's the secret? Like, what, what's the secret you want to know? We, we want to know secrets, and there are times we need to know secrets. But I wonder at this point in your life today, what secret you wish you knew? As you look at this list, which, which one of these seems most desirable? Different circumstances could lead us towards different ones, but ultimately, most of us end up at this one. Happiness. We want to be happy. Our nation was established on the reality of life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. We want to be happy. And if you're sitting here today looking for the Sunday school answer out of this list, I'm it's still this one. The wisest man ever, Solomon, wrote in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12, these words, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live. If we're honest, we all want this. We want to be happy and do good. We want to have joy and add value. There's an innate desire for us to find contentment. And without that, we become anxious, stressed, we worry, we become discontent. And we reach a point where we wish somebody could just take all of our worries and carry them for us. So we can just relax and be happy. It reminds me of the story of a man who graduated from business, business school with an accounting degree. And he found an ad for an accounting job in the want ads. And so he went, and at the interview, it was the owner of the business that interviewed him. And he was a small, nervous man, and this was a small business. And the owner said to him, look, uh, I need somebody with an accounting degree, but I really need somebody to just take care of worrying for me. <laughs> and the accountant said, well, excuse me? He said, look, I got a lot of things to worry about, and I don't need to be worrying about money, so I need you to take care of all the issues around money and just take care of all those worries and pull them off my back. The accountant's like, okay, well, what's his job pay? The owner said, $80,000. man said, $80,000? How does, how does a small business like that pay for such a large sum of money? The owner looked at him and said, well, that, my friend, is your first worry. <laughs> 
we wish somebody could take our worries. We don't want to worry, but we do. We want to be content, but we're not. But yet we can be. We just need to know the secret. We just need to know the secret. Last week, Beth did a really great job helping us unpack some of the realities around worry and ask the question of what if we didn't worry? What if we didn't worry about anything? And if you missed that message or any other messages in our What If series, you can find them at heritageqc.com under the media tab. But one of the things that she explained was the connection that worry and joy have, not to each other, but to other things. She, she showed us and talked through how worry is connected to fear and joy is connected to peace. And we actually live in this seesaw reality that when we embrace worry, it drives us towards fear and away from peace. But when we embrace joy, it drives us towards peace and away from fear. This is the reality. The issue is that we've got a choice. We get to pick and choose what we're going to embrace and whether we live with fear or live with peace. We have to choose. What if we didn't worry? Or better yet, what if we were content in every circumstance? What if we moved beyond worry and were content in every circumstance? See, that's the secret we need to know. What if we knew that secret? And today as we look in Philippians again, we're going to see Paul talking and, and, and we're going to see that he learned a secret. It's not just any secret, it was a secret that radically changed his life. And it's one he's been sharing through the whole book of Philippians, but in this last section, he's literally going to state it overtly. He's going to share it for, and we're going to be able to ourselves move from worry and move towards contentment based on what we can learn out of what he wrote. It's giving us a chance to move from worry to true contentment. Because I think sometimes in the dynamic we think that our contentment is based on circumstances, we're going to see that circumstances are irrelevant to our ability to be content. Irrelevant. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to grab it and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 10. I'm going to read down through the rest of the chapter, and then we're going to go back through and just take apart a few of the sections to understand what God has for us today. And I encourage you to follow along in your own Bible, and, and as I read through the Word, just let the Spirit speak through the Word of God to you. Take notes, observe, interpret, apply. What's it saying? What does it mean? And how do I now live? So as I read down through this, I encourage you to do that. We're going to start right there at verse 10 in Philippians chapter 4. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at, the la at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this, all things, through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians... No, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those 
who belonged to Caesar's household, which I find fascinating that he throws that in there. This is a really neat detail that the Caesar's household had representatives of the gospel in that. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So here's the deal. Paul wraps up this awesome letter with what I find to be kind of a weird section. <laughs> Just kind of odd. It's a funny conversation for me. I mean, he's saying like, thanks, but you shouldn't have. He's saying, I appreciate it, but it wasn't necessary. No need, but it's nice that you did. It's reminiscent for me of that who's on first kind of dialogue. But even here in verse 10 and 11, he starts to just lay out this critical foundation. Let's go back and look at it. He talks about rejoicing that the Lord at last has renewed your concern for me. He's saying, look, you still had concern, but you couldn't show it. There wasn't an opportunity. Then he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. That's huge. Learning to be content regardless of the circumstances. I, I underline that, highlight, check mark that. That's big. The, the King James Version says that statement slightly differently. The King James says that, For I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. This is a big deal. And it's even a bigger deal when we understand Paul's journey, his life experiences, his resume and ministry. Let me share with you what those things are. This comes from 2 Corinthians. He was imprisoned. He was flogged. He was exposed to death. Five times received 40 lashes minus one. Three times beaten with rods. Once stoned and three times shipwrecked. The dude had trouble. He experienced hardship. But he's not saying, woe is me, have pity on me. He's, he's doing the exact opposite. He's saying, look, I've been there. I'm not worrying. I'm not anxious. I'm joyful. I'm embracing joy that leads to peace, not worry that leads to fear. I have been there. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times in life when I'm dealing with something and well-meaning people will come alongside and they'll, they'll try to speak into that moment when they have really not a full understanding of what I'm dealing with. They mean well, but they really don't have a clue. They haven't walked in my shoes to get what I'm dealing with. You ever been there with that? This is not one of those cases. <laughs> Paul gets it. He's been there, done that. And he's saying, I have found contentment. I've experienced things like this, but I am content. And, and the word that he used in verse, verse 11, the Greek word in verse 11 is austarchus. And it's only used once in all of Scripture. Just once. And it's right here in verse 11. And there's three definitions for it. Here's the first one. Sufficient for oneself, strong enough or possessing enough to need no aid or support. That's the first definition. Here's the second definition. Independent of external circumstances. So it's not circumstance-based. I can actually have contentment apart from circumstances. And third, contented with one's lot, with one's means, though the slenderest. So no matter my circumstance or situation, the ability to live in the context of contentment. Paul experienced a lot of difficulty, but he figured out a way through the secret he knew to live above his circumstances and to be content. Let's take a look at what he said. This is in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether imprisoned, whether beaten, whether lashed, whether shipwrecked, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul learned the secret to contentment regardless of the circumstances. What if we were content 
in every circumstance. So you might be thinking, okay, that's great. So Paul learned the secret. He, he's, that's, I'm happy for him that he figured that out. But what about me? I've got junk in my life and circumstances that are hard. And I want contentment. So what's the deal? Well, he gives us the secret. In the very next verse, verse 13, he gives us a secret. So check this out. Come and take a look at it. But hold on just one second. Are you excited? We get to know a secret, people. And I love that we get to go to the Word of God. We can read the truth of the Word of God, and it radically changes us. We can apply it to our life, and everything begins to change. So here we go. This is a secret. Get excited. Verse 13. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. I can do all this, all things, whatsoever, everything through Jesus who gives me strength. That's the secret. That's the secret. It's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus something. It's not Jesus plus someone. It's just Jesus. And when we understand that, well, then we're set free from hurry and distraction and worry and dissatisfaction and discontent. And Paul lived as an example of this, even as he wrote this letter from prison. He learned the secret to contentment in all things, all circumstances. Now, let me just caveat that learning to be content will always involve some level of suffering. Always. There'll be some level of hardship, some level of difficulty for us to learn contentment. And if you're running from that suffering and difficulty, you're actually running from the ability to sit and, and rest in contentment. Because God uses those difficulties, that suffering, that hardship to refine us. So don't run from it. Lean into him in those moments and watch what he does. Because he refines you know, when I was on my way to college, I signed up for a voluntary program. It was a two-week wilderness trip for, right for incoming freshmen. And uh, I knew that it was a backpacking experience, but I didn't realize how minimalist it would be or how extreme it would be. But it was extreme. It was a two-week journey of firsts for me. It was the first time that I literally hiked for 24 hours nonstop through the night. We called it the death march. It was the first time that I canoed all night long, trying not to fall asleep and fall out of the boat in the middle of the night in the dark. It was the first time that I swam in a pond and got out with like half a dozen leeches all over my feet and legs. It was the first time that I ran 13 consecutive miles without stopping. There were a lot of firsts in that, but they weren't just physical firsts. There were spiritual firsts. It was the first time that I saw God answer prayer immediately and directly. Prayers of healing and prayers of provision. It was the first time that I set aside extended periods of time, multiple days in prayer and fasting. And he showed up in those moments and taught me from his word. It was the first time that I began to see God not just as the figurehead of the church or the God of my parents, but my God who loved me and saw me, had a purpose and plan for me. It was a series of beautiful, wonderful spiritual firsts intersecting amidst the complexity of physical firsts that were marked by pain and hardship and suffering. We struggled in hunger and we struggled to find water at times. But God's ability to teach us contentment is intersecting in that tension of the physical and the spiritual. And I learned that I could do things physically and spiritually with him that I didn't think were possible. See, pain without purpose is just pain. Pain attached to purpose is perseverance. 
And that's where God refines to the point that we can live in contentment. I learned a number of things that I didn't think were possible in that scenario. But I wonder, what if we were content in every circumstance? See, Paul, throughout this whole letter, has been building a framework, establishing and outlining the reality through this whole letter of the need to draw on Christ's strength. We go back to the first chapter. He starts that God will, he says, God will finish what he starts in chapter 1. He, he says that we're to live a life worthy of the gospel in that same chapter, as well as the reality that to live is Christ and die is gain. In chapter 2, he starts to push a little bit more on the reality that we're to have the attitude, the same attitude of, as Jesus. He goes on in chapter 3 to talk about what we once thought was profitable is now considered to be lost and we need to forget what's behind and strain towards what's ahead that we, can be, we shouldn't be anxious about nothing and have peace in Christ. And then in verse 13 of chapter 4, he says, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. That's the secret. It is Jesus. Do you want a worry-free life? You want to find contentment in life? This is the secret to that. The secret to happiness, the secret to peace. I like the way the message translation makes this statement. Check this out. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Anything. I don't know what you're dealing with today, and I don't need to know to understand that this is still the secret to you finding contentment regardless of your circumstances. But I think often when we engage God, it's based on circumstance. When our relationship with God should be independent from circumstances, we can learn to be content. That's not worrying, not defeated, not angry through Christ. Paul did it in any and every situation, in all things. So that's relationships, that's money problems, that's job loss, that's health concerns, it's hunger, it's addiction, it's personal loss, it's death, grief. And you may be thinking, I can't. Sean, I can't. I, I can't stop worrying. I can't let go. I can't trust. I can't forgive that person for what they did. I can't continue on. I say, no, you can't. But in Christ, you can. In Jesus Christ, you can. It doesn't matter what you're facing. Because we can, through him who gives us strength, do all things. Let me, uh, let me give one caution to this, though. Don't ever confuse comfort with contentment. Too many people say they see contentment when they really seek comfort. But being content is not the same as being comfortable. Being content is not the same as being comfortable. It's different. In fact, contentment and comfort, they're not the same, nor are they inevitably linked. We can have one without the other. In fact, comfort often competes with contentment. And in the kingdom, in the things of God, contentment is linked to purpose. Contentment is linked to Jesus, and Jesus calls us to conquer, not to comfort, to advance his kingdom rather than building our own small kingdoms. Around here at the Her Heritage Church family, we talk in terms of three, two, one. We get that because most people seek to protect and preserve themselves first, then others, the special others that they like, and then the organization of the kingdom last. But Jesus calls us to put the kingdom first, then others, then self. So it's not one, two, three, it's three, two, one kingdom, others, self. 
That's the posture we should have. That's why we should seek to be content rather than comfortable. Yet too many people say they seek contentment when they really mean comfort. But being content is not the same as being comfortable. They're different. And we're created to serve a God who wants our full commitment. When we don't give him full dependency, it's always, always we end up in a place of new slavery. We don't truly depend on him. We always end in slavery to something else. Our desire, our appetite, even our own plans. The Israelites experienced this in lots of different ways. And at one point, they were experiencing famine, and God rescues them and brings them into Egypt. And under the favor that he gave to Joseph, they had favor. But in that season of favor, they ultimately transitioned to comfort, and they became slaves. And next week, we're going to begin a journey where we unpack their process over time, the choices they made was we launch a new series we're calling Game of Life. It's Game of Life, same game, different choices. And we're going to walk through Moses, the journey of Moses and the Israelites over some of those key high points so that we understand how we can live life to the full and make different choices in the same dynamic that the Israelites had a chance to engage with ups and downs, and we have ups and downs, but we can engage differently. So I invite you to grab friends and family. Make sure you come out for this series that we're launching next week, The Game of Life. You're not going to want to miss it. But for today, understand that being content is not the same as being comfortable. I think there's lots of reasons why people struggle to, uh, to, to land in, in contentment and have peace. But I think there's two main reasons that dominate. The first is addressing the symptom and not the problem. Beth talked a bit about this last week, and I'm not going to preach it again. You can get online and find it. But trying to stop worrying by just not worrying doesn't work. We simply end up getting more frustrated. We try to remove worry without getting to the heart of the why behind it, and it'll never go away then. We have to get to the root. It's like, it's like removing a dandelion. If you just pull the dandelion off the top of the, of the yard, what happens? It just comes right back because the root's still there. You've got to get down into the root and remove the root. You've got to look to the causing element of our worry, to not just the symptom. We've got to identify the root problem because a lack of contentment is really just a symptom of other things. In fact, the symptoms that point to the root cause of discontent are things like selfishness. You struggle with selfishness, that's a good alerting indicator that you've got a problem. You struggle with control or worry or disobedience or independence from God or a lack of prayer. These all alert us to an impending problem. If you've got those functioning in your life, you've got to make some adjustments and you've got to go deeper. The first reason people don't land in contentment is they don't address the problem, they just address the symptom. The second is I think we try to do it alone. We say, you know what, I'm sick of this thing and I'm just going to stop. My own willpower, my own determination, I'm going to pull back and I'm just going to make sure that I don't stay there anymore. But I got to tell you, we need Jesus to help us stop. And we need the fellowship of others to keep us in accountability. Any victory that we experience when we're just doing it in our own strength is short-lived. It won't last. We need Jesus. We need the Spirit at work in us. Here's what Jesus said about connecting to Him in John 15. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you stay joined to me, if you stay connected to me, in relationship to me, and I stay joined to you, then you will produce lots of fruit. But you cannot do anything without me. Can't do anything without Him. I know this is a familiar passage for many of us, but here's the deal. We've got to move past awareness of this passage and put it into practice. From awareness to practice, by the Spirit. We live this way because Jesus left a counselor for us, the Holy Spirit, an advocate. It's by the Spirit that we get to live in this. And, and when we find ourselves in perpetual discontent, often it's a result of a lack of relationship and submission to the Spirit. 
We can experience salvation. We choose to follow Jesus as Lord. But if we don't live into that full dependence on Him and the power of the Spirit within us, we will struggle in cycles of discontent and dissatisfaction. Because the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer requires surrender, full surrender, a giving of authority. Without the Spirit of God at work in us, we don't know how to make sense and interact with the world. We, we can't discern God's will without the Spirit. The Spirit helps us discern the will of God. We need the Spirit. And without the Spirit, the symptoms start to pop up, and then we start to chase the symptoms rather than addressing the ultimate problem and going deeper. Symptoms alert us to discontent. But again, like I said earlier, learning to be content will always involve some level of suffering and difficulty. Don't run from it. Lean into Him in that moment. It's, it's a context of refining. I think we engage God often based on circumstances. And when circumstances aren't going the way we want, we pull back, we take control, we shift our dependence back to ourselves, and we try to make things happen rather than remaining in stillness before Him and keeping our dependence there. The only way we can do that in the tumultuous circumstances we face is that we, we actually have trust. We trust Him. And if you're still tracking your note guide, a relationship with God is based in trust, not circumstances. It's based in trust, not circumstances. Look, let me clarify something. There are times that God will lead us into what I call holy discontent. Holy discontent. That will always lead to kingdom things, always lead to redemptive forward things. Holy discontent is a precursor to progress, to good fruit, the kind of fruit that Jesus just described. And the focus is always on Him. Holy discontent always has a focus on Him and His glory. Unholy discontent, discontent is a slippery slope to dysfunction. And the focus is always on us. You want to know the difference of where your discontent is? Figure out who you're focusing on. Him or yourself. Circumstances are never the key factor. It's actually what we do in those circumstances. And a relationship with God is based in trust, not circumstances. It's not what happens to us, but what through us that matters. And that always requires trust. Once we understand our need for Jesus to live in freedom, and once we understand that worrisome discontent is a symptom of a greater problem, now we can hone in on addressing the issues and breaking the habits that lead us into lesser life. So here's what I want to do today. I want to I want to give you a six-pack. <laughs> I'm going to give you a six-pack today, and you thought you'd never hear the pastor say that. But I'm really not talking about crushing cans. We'll talk more around six-pack abs because we're talking about getting fit. And I want to give you six practices, six practices that move us not just away from worry but into contentment. Because here's the deal. If you can let go of worry but you don't replace it with something that leads to contentment, it's only a matter of time until you fall back. It's like if you stop eating junk food, and you don't replace that with healthy, nutritious food, you're not really ever going to get healthy. Not only do we need to let go of worry, but we need to embrace practices that lead us to contentment. And here are six of them that I want to encourage you to put into practice daily and weekly in your life. Here's the first one. Practice gratitude. Practice gratitude. This is thanking God. It goes all the way back to verse 3 in chapter 1 of Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you in all of my prayers. Paul had an attitude of gratitude. This is the daily action of choosing joy that leads to peace. It rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's not giving circumstances the, the power to define your life, but giving Jesus that privilege. Let Jesus define your life, not circumstances. So look for places to demonstrate gratitude, to thank Him for the good gifts that He has given. 
Harry Ironside said something like this. It was powerful. We would worry less if we praised more. That's truth. We would worry less if we praised more. Thanksgiving is the enemy of discontent and dissatisfaction. Practice gratitude. That's what that looks like. I encourage you to just take a hold of what you can say today. I want to thank God for this. Practice gratitude. The second practice I want to encourage you to engage is to consider others. But it's not just to think about others. I want you to consider others better. You can add better behind that if you want. We think enough about people already on our own right now. But I want you to think of others differently. Consider them better than yourself. This goes back to Philippians chapter 2 where Paul said, Don't look only to your own interests. Look to the interests of others and consider others better than yourself. It's three, two, one. Kingdom, others, self. I had somebody after last service come up to me and say, you know what, Sean, you know what joy stands for, Sean? Jesus, others, you. I'm like, that preaches. Like, it's joy. It's, it's three, two, one. Jesus, other, you. Consider others better. Here's the next practice. Place confidence rightly. That's rightly. So when Paul talked about, I used to place confidence in flesh, but now I don't. I place confidence in Jesus. We need to place our confidence rightly. If we're going to have a relationship with God, we need to trust Base it in trust, not circumstances. And we need to place our confidence, not in what we can do, but what He can do. Where we, we trust Him. We place our confidence in His ability to work through us. He talked about that in chapter 3. And in different ways, He expressed that. But in, and here's the next practice. Number four is to live forward. Live forward. Faith is inherently oriented forward. We talked about that before. Inherently oriented forward. It's not backwards. It's now and next. It's present and future. And, and the only reason we can look back or should look back is to see God's faithfulness and to learn lessons from there, not to focus there. If looking back leads us to shame, if looking back leads us into a cul-de-sac where we're stuck and we're not moving forward with God, we're not living in obedience to Him. We need to live forward. It's, it's now and next. It's present and future. That's why Paul talked about forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on. So live forward. Next practice is to embrace citizenship. This is our citizenship in heaven. Paul talked about being a citizen of heaven. So we take lenses and we look at life through the lenses of being a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of this world. So our time and our talent and our treasure all through the grid of what does my, my, my citizenship in heaven mean in this dynamic? How do I live for the glory of God and not just my own? How do I make a difference that lasts for eternity? Embrace your citizenship. And finally, shift dependence. Shift dependence. This is depending on Jesus and not ourselves. This is letting the Spirit do its job in us by the power that, that raised Jesus from the dead. That power rests in us because we have that same Spirit. Let the Spirit work in you. When I went through that two-week wilderness experience and I did things I never thought possible, it wasn't my strength. It was the power of God at work in me by the Spirit. And that begins to change everything when we live dependent on Him. These things lead to an attitude of contentment. These things cultivate a spirit of contentment. And I encourage you to embrace all of these things, but at least pick one today. One six-pack reality. Because this is not just, as I said, about setting aside worry. It's about living into contentment. This is replacing the bad with the good. Practice these things. All of these are possible by the Spirit. Only by the Spirit. We can do some of this on our own, but to live fully into it, we need the Spirit of God at work within us. Because the Spirit of God brings fruit into our life. It's different than other fruit. Here's how Paul described it in another letter to the church in Galatia. He said, but, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. These are evidences of a life contented in Christ, empowered by the Spirit. 
There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. In every circumstance, in every dynamic, let the Spirit work in you. Each of those six practices are possible by the Spirit, through the Spirit. Embrace them and, and practice them on a daily basis. And you'll begin to see God lead you into places of contentment you thought were not possible. You know, one of the dynamics I see in this world, and I'm going to generalize this, but hang with me. The young tend to seek significance and the old tend to seek security. Young men chase identity and significance. Old men chase security and stability. I get it. I understand that the young want to identify who they are and be something. The old are just looking for something to stabilize a life that seems to be deteriorating. But both scenarios, young and old, are actually not positioned to find their identity or their security in either one of those places because they're depending on themselves in those dynamics. Each are positioned to find their identity and security in Christ, regardless of the age. And that's where we find contentment, in the circum no, regardless of any circumstance. Our identity and security is in Him, not in what we do when you're young or what we do when we're old. It's in Him by His Spirit. We each have an opportunity to chase Him by His Spirit. And here's what Paul says in verse 19. He says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What if we were content in every circumstance? Let's go to so what. I just want to give you one final thing about contentment. Contentment provides clarity. Contentment provides clarity. It provides the ability to, to see the opportunities that Jesus brings in front of us. We're positioned when we live in contentment to risk. We're positioned to ask what if. We're positioned to chase Him and not comfort, to live forward and not backward, to, to choose joy over worry, to live in peace and not fear. And wherever you are today, I want you to know you can start following Jesus from right there, right there. You don't have to do anything else but come before Him and ask and invite Him to be Lord of your life. Give Him leadership and authority in your life to sit on the throne of your life. If that's something you've not done, I want to encourage you to consider doing that today. On the back of the note guide are a couple of steps and an example prayer where you can step into relationship with God through Jesus Christ and you can begin to experience the Spirit at work in you, His strength providing for you to work through any circumstance. And if you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear that when you give Jesus authority, when you give Jesus leadership, when you give Jesus lordship, that's the only way you find contentment. It comes nowhere else. You'll always struggle without that. So lean into him. Pick out the, the six-pack practices and apply them. Live in them on a daily basis. The Philippian church, that church was exceptional. <laughs> they were the only ones that supported Paul in, in, in this season of ministry. They were involved in church planting. They were involved in living sent. And, and when others were not or would not engage, they did. And I believe that we as a church family here at Heritage are positioned to be just as exceptional. To sit before the Father, to share the greatest secret ever, understanding that as we sit in His presence and His stillness with dependence on Him, that we can ask the what-if questions. And we can actually experience Him like never before. 
It's like the psalmist described in Psalm 46. The words of the Lord, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know. Contentment provides clarity. When we're running around in discontent and worry and, and hurry, we're not still. And when we're not still, we can't see and we can't know. But contentment provides clarity. What if we were content in every circumstance? You know, as we wrap up our what-if journey, I can think of no better way to do that than to take part in communion. Communion is a sacrament of the church. It's a sacred moment. It's something Jesus directed. In fact, when we engage in communion, we're doing five different things. When we engage in communion, we remember his life, his death, and his resurrection. When we engage in communion, it's a direct act of obedience because he told us to. When we engage in communion, it's a moment to examine our own lives and make sure we're rightly related to the Father through Jesus. It's also an opportunity for us to declare his sacrifice, what he did for us. And finally, it's a corporate expression, something that we do together as part of our fellowship. And so today as we take a moment to engage in communion, we're going to do it differently. We're staying in simulcast or Rock Island. You're still with us. And in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then the ushers are going to come forward and distribute the elements, but I want to give you a few instructions. Communion is for everybody here who follows Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Heritage Church to take part in communion. You just need to be a member of God's family, having professed faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. So if that's you, we invite you to take part in this today. If that's not you, you can pray right now, and you can ask Jesus to be your Lord, and then turn around and take part in this sacred moment. And I encourage you to seriously consider that. But in a moment when the ushers come, after I pray, you're going to have a chance to just do your own time of reflection. Just talk with God. Worship to the song that's being sung before you. Make sure you're right in examining your own life. Talk about the six-pack realities. Talk about things you need to let go of in the areas of worry. Just do business with God. But when the plate comes by you, I want you to reach in and pick up two cups. They're stacked together. On the top will be the, the drink, and on the bottom is the wafer. Make sure you grab two cups, and then I want you to hold them. I want you to what? I want you to what? Hold them. Don't take them. Just hold them. Because we're going to distribute the elements across our network, and we will take them all together. You'll have a moment to sit in that space with those symbols of his broken body and his shed blood. Talk with him. After that, we've had a chance for those to be distributed. I'll come back, and we will take them together. We'll take them what? We'll take them together. If you need gluten-free, it's in the back. But I want to give you a few moments to just talk with the Father, do some business, as we get ready to take part in this beautiful moment as one church in multiple locations. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that through Jesus, we not only have forgiveness and new life, but we have purpose and relationship with you. God, what if we lived content in every circumstance? What if we let the Spirit work in us and in so many cool ways that this world was changed. You could work through us and not work in spite of us ever. But I pray, Father, in these next few moments as we each take time to reflect on the sacrifice of your son. It's a demonstration of obedience. We remember what he did. But I pray that you continue to speak, that we would know how to bring you honor and glory as we forget what's behind and chase what's ahead, as we look to you, your son, to give us the strength we need in every circumstance. So in these next few moments, Lord, May you speak and lead as we prepare to take these elements together in a few moments. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.